you would take your Bibles and open to Esther as we continue our study there, beginning in Esther chapter 2, verse 19, and reading the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. Esther 2, beginning in 19. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made her known to her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this time, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or did not pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. They cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with as it seems good to you. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Lord, as we see darkness here, would you show us light? Would you show us that though these situations were occurring, you were at work all along to save your people? Would you encourage our faith today in Christ? We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're asking the question with Esther and Daniel, what does it mean to live life in exile? As Christians, that's what we are. And more and more, we feel the realities of that in this country. This is not our home. We're pilgrims on the way. What does it mean to live a life in a land that feels foreign to everything that you believe? Where is God? Where is he? What of the problem of evil? These are questions that dominate the landscape of the book of Esther. The question of evil. So far, we've seen a king who basks in wealth and power. I swear as the king of the Persian Empire rules from India to Ethiopia. Was perhaps the most powerful individual in the world in his day. None more powerful than him. We know of him in scripture, but we also know of his life in the historic record. What we know from Esther is that this king loved to celebrate himself. We started with this wicked king in chapter 1, but the plot gets more evil in chapter 2. He had lost his wife. Last week we saw the reality of what he did to, to find a new one. Human trafficking. A selection of young, beautiful virgins from all over the place brought to the king and placed into a, a harem. It's, it's a terrible, terrifying reality. And we already knew that Esther was on the scene until we were like, no, anybody but her. But of course, it's going to be Esther. She's going to be picked. We don't know exactly what God is up to yet, but we have some big questions. The question the questions revolve around the providence of God. Have you ever thought about providence? What is the providence of God? The Catechism our church uses says this, 
God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving and governing all creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Preserving, governing, ruling over all things and people. The second Helvetic confession, another confession says this, we believe that all things in heaven and on earth and in all creatures are preserved and governed by the providence of this wise, eternal and almighty God. Providence. God is overseeing all things. The scriptures make it abundantly clear that this is true, that God ordains all things for his own purposes. Psalm 113, the Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? You know, Psalm 139, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There is nothing that God doesn't know. Romans 11:36. for from him and through him and to him are all things. When Augustine speaks of the providence of God, it's really incredible. Um, He references Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to to the ground apart from your father. Augustine says this, what men regard of as least valued is governed by God's omnipotent. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, says that not even a hair can fall from your head apart from God. All things are ruled by his providence. In our text, we keep see that evil um, is ratcheting up. It's not going away. From a king who likes to flaunt his belongings and wealth and power to a sadistic plot to find the king a new wife involving tra- trafficking in young women today, the plot will expand even further. And this plot has tremendous backing, and this plot is to eliminate all the Jews, to wipe them off the face of the earth, men, women, children. Evil. This is partly why this is in our Bible. How do these things fit together? This God who is omnipotent and rules all things, Creatures, people, and actions by his providence, how can, how can we reconcile that with the existence of such evil? By the way, it's not going to answer all the questions for you. It's just going to lay out the story before you, and you're going to be left scratching your head. That doesn't mean that those aren't the themes, and that's part of the lesson that we learn about life in exile is sometimes we're not going to get it. Last week we left off with Esther being made queen of Persia, the wife of King Ahasuerus. Today we'll see the next two movements, good and evil. There's definitely a rise in evil, but we'll also see that God has been at work behind the scenes to do good Let me make an observation really quick before we dive in. Sometimes when we're... There's a lot of hurting going on in Esther. 
And sometimes when we're trying to minister to a friend or a family member who's hurting, someone who's dealing with tremendous pain, we, we might make a, a few mistakes. And one mistake would be this, to, to try to give an answer for the suffering. Kind of like Job's friends, do you remember that? All these terrible things that happened to Job. And he had friends who came along that just, they were just trying to explain. Let me, let me just explain to you why you're suffering. That's a mistake. And another mistake would be something like this. If you're ministering to someone that you love and care for that's hurting, uh, another mistake would be to say, well, here's the good that's going to come out of this. Don't ever do that. Is God at work providentially controlling all things? And do we know for sure that all things are going to work for good? Yes, but does that mean that we're always going to see the good? No. Absolutely not. We need to let God be God. We can affirm to people who are suffering, family and friends, absolutely the goodness of God. But we do not have the privileged insight to see the whole story. If you were to step into chapter 3 of Esther and try to explain all the good, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of good at the end down there. A decree of Holocaust and the kings partying and drinking. Puritan pastor John Flavel says, providence is like a Hebrew word. This is so great. It is only understood when it is read backwards. Providence works like that. It might be the end of your life before you understand why God had moved the way that he had in your life. And you might not even then. So here the, the plot thickens from last week to this week. We have an interesting opening line. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Last week we read that Mordecai, Esther's cousin who had taken her in as an orphan, would go to the city gates and check on Esther. And here we learn that not only is he at the gates of the city, he's at the gate of the king. Either he has been given a promotion or he's been chosen for this job all along. The implication is that Mordecai has some kind of state job. He works for the government. He's sitting in the courthouse gate. And there he's doing his job as a civil servant. And this is what's great about Esther and Providence is he just so happens to overhear two guys talking. Just so happened to hear a conversation. And this conversation was about a, a few disgruntled employees who had access to the king and they were going to do him violence. They were going to try to kill him. And so he goes to Esther and he says, Listen, you won't believe this, but I just heard these two guys making a plot. They, they want to kill the king. Go tell him. And so Esther does. She goes to tell the king and she in the name of Mordecai, hey, this is what's going on. You have servants who want to kill you. They investigate that claim, and sure enough, they find that it's true. And they kill both men. It's a really interesting thing. Most kings are known for their swift justice, but also for their sense of loyalty. 
And, and if you're reading along through, through this book and you have any sense of what kings would do, you would expect what would happen next. The two guys would die and then Mordecai would be rewarded richly. That is what should have happened. What we know happened is they record it in the annals. They have it written down. It's like um, they don't have their iPads. They don't have newspapers. So what they do is basically they have journals for the king that are kept as public record of events that happen. This is recorded in the public record and we're shown that in the text. Next, we, again, we should see Mordecai receiving praise, receiving money, receiving a promotion, but the exact opposite happens. The king promotes Haman, the Agagite, to be second in command of the Persian Empire. Why? Why not Mordecai? Who is Haman? We're not given any of those details at all. It's kind of bewildering, but we sense trouble is coming. A bit of an aside, this is really incredible. Why does the narrator insist on calling him Haman the Agagite? It's kind of odd. It's like he's got this bone to pick. He's not content all the time to just call him Haman. He wants to drag it out, the Agagite. Is that a disease? Kind of sounds like it. No. A few hundred years before these events, we're told, um, we're told in another story, and there was a king there, um, King Agag, an Amalekite king. And the Amalekites, if you remember your history, sought to destroy Israel. They wanted to wipe them all out, and Agag was their king. 1 Samuel 15, we remember King Saul was told to kill all the Amalekites. They were placed under the ban, and he didn't do it. He, he let a lot of their livestock live, and, and he, in fact, let the king live. And later, this king, King Agag, would be brought with the king, and Samuel would hack him into pieces. When Esther keeps saying Haman the Agagite, we're meant to remember. Remember King Agag. Remember the Amalekites. Remember that they want you dead. This is, um, this is like a, a little trail of crumbs in the story. It's meant to draw us back into history and say, hey, there's some real bad um, animosity here between these two peoples, right? The Amalekites, the, the Agagite, they want God's people dead. And it's been that way for a long, long time. And I would say that even gives us a few more breadcrumbs and takes us all the way back to the garden. It takes us back to the garden when we were made in the image of God and placed, God placed us there in Adam. Perfect. And we rebelled. We fell in sin. And from that time on, there has been a, a distinct fight going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this is not a pretty fight. This is not like, oh yeah, it's just a, a mild disagreement. No, this is a massive divide between God's people and the world that hates them. We have another small matter 
that looks and sounds like something insignificant but will turn into something very serious. Chapter 3, verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded so concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down. He did not pay homage. So the command is, hey, when Haman comes through, everybody bow down. Mordecai is not bowing. And some of his buddies notice and they're like, hey, we've noticed that when, Mord- when uh, Haman comes through, you're not moving. And then one day, Mordecai explains to them, well, it's, it's because I'm Jewish. There are laws, the first and second commandment, which constrain the worship of the people of God. Mordecai does something similar to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, which we'll read about in Daniel. He refuses to bow. Now his Jewishness is in the open. Oh, I'm not going to bow to a man. I'm not going to do that. Listen, and here's just a small application What are ways that we are invited as Christians to to express this in our lives? I would say you coming to worship is one of them. This is a defiant act in our world. This is a defiant act against everything else, the tyranny of the urgent, getting ahead on a Sunday, come to worship with the people of God. It doesn't feel like the most defiant thing you'll do all week, but it is. It's a gospel defiance. That's what Mordecai's up to. So all of this comes to Haman, and we expect revenge, but Haman is not satisfied with revenge on one man alone. He's cold and calculating. He wants to destroy all the Jews. Not just Mordecai. That's not enough to satisfy his vengeance. Can you imagine the cold fury that exists in his heart? When he finds out Mordecai doesn't bow because he's Jewish, he wants to wipe out the entire group of people. Here we have more irony. Mordecai and Esther save King Ahasuerus. They save his life by letting him in on a plot. And now the very ones who rescued the king are under threat for their very lives. Them along with the entire nation of Israel. We're meant to see irony. We're meant to see providence. We're meant to see these great things. If it it were you and I in their situation, we would say, it's not fair. We would rise up and argue, it's not fair. How many times have you done that with the providence of God in your life? When something doesn't go your way, or you don't get what you think you deserve in a situation, how many times have you said, it's not fair? Look, that's placing our thoughts above God's thoughts, our ways above His ways. Receiving His providence is what we do as the people of God. We're meant to cheer for Mordecai and Esther and be like, hey, things look bad, but we're on your side. We're meant to sever ties with this vain and prideful king. We're meant to stand with the people of God and against the brutal schemes of Haman. We're meant to 
transform all of life by renewing our mind. We're meant to see that God is still at work even when we don't see how. Haman's rage doesn't remain inside in secret. He begins plotting and planning. And the first part of his plan is to pick a date when all this stuff is going to go down. And he takes a long time to do it. He chooses to roll the dice. You see, his issue is with Mordecai and Mordecai's God and any God that would be sovereign other than him. And what's his God? Chance. He rolls the dice. They take the poor, the lots, and they cast them time and time again to narrow down the dates. And they have their calendars out and his servants come in day after day, week after week, until they narrow down based on pure chance in utter defiance of a God who is, has any rule in providence, in utter defiance of God. They say, this is going to be pure chance. And we're going to check, we're going to find this date and circle it on the calendar. And this is the day that the entire, the entire race of Israel will die. Men, women, children, they're all going to die based on the roll of a dice. See the utter defiance of Haman against God in that? It's not God's rule. It's the roll of a dice. And what's so funny is... There's an entire feast that we'll talk more about this that the people of God enact called Purim, dice, celebrating this reality because who controls dice? That's the point. Who controls dice? To set this plot in motion, Haman takes his plan to the king. But he doesn't bring accusations directly against Mordecai, but against all the Jews. He sells this violent plan, which is crafty, but not accurate. It's filled with deception. First, he offers facts. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed throughout all the people of all the provinces. Second, he says, they don't keep your laws. They don't keep your laws. This was partially true, but not fully. Those living in exile would have maintained the Persian laws as long as they didn't contradict the law of God. Lastly, an outright lie was to say that the Jews were guilty of breaking laws when the only offense known to us at this point, the only one, is that Mordecai wasn't bowing to Haman. He offers no proof. Then we see another very real aspect of the wicked kings of the earth. He appeals to money. Haman first tells Ahasuerus, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. That's going to get his attention. He loves his money. We saw that in chapter 1. He loves his golden couch. He loves his fine decor in his palace. He is not going to give up his money. Next, he offers to pay 10,000 talents of silver. Several commentators, I had to check this, Several commentators say the same thing. That would have been about 750,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. He's offering a fortune to get this done. And what he's saying by doing this is he's saying, look, this isn't some mere threat. And we don't have, um, this isn't something that's going to be a drain on your resources. You're going to be richer for doing this. And we're going to have the resources to carry it out. This isn't some vain threat. 
He wants the Jews dead. I might expect the king to have some pause or reservation. Like, don't, don't you want to think about this? You're talking about wiping a people group off the face of the earth. We, we might expect the king to, to be put in check, but there's no such thing. He handed over his signet ring saying, get it done. It would be like handing someone your phone with access to all your media and all your stuff and saying, just go, say what you want to say in my name. That's exactly what the king does to Haman. Go say it. Go do it. Make it happen. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder all their goods, pure evil. Kill them and take their stuff. Surely the king would realize that he's being manipulated for Haman's wicked ends. No. The dark scene closes with couriers speedily carrying this awful decree and the king and Haman drinking. It says the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Imagine all the Jews who lived there. And everybody suddenly on a public decree, you would walk by and see, oh, that's the day that we're going to die. As we begin to make applications, we can definitely say this, the world can be a dark and twisted place. As those living in exile, we need to acknowledge that reality and not hide from it. The German Holocaust the Russian purges, Rwanda, Sudan, Darfur, Bosnia, Cambodia, Armenia. We could go on and on and on. The Christian purges that are ongoing in parts of Nigeria, dark and terrible. In this dark world, the people of God might look small and weak by comparison. However, we started with providence and we are meant to see all the ways that God is already at work. God is at work in the pride of the king. Because of that pride, he will lose his first queen. God is at work in the selection of a new queen. and the elevation of an orphan Jew to the, to the rank of queen in Persia. God is at work when Mordecai happens to be at the gate. And there he just so happens to overhear a plot to kill the king. God is at work when Haman is elevated to the second in the land rather than Mordecai. God is at work when Mordecai refuses to bow. God is at work when Haman chooses to defy providence for the roll of a dice and enact his sadistic plan. God is at work through all this darkness. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Yes, roll the dice. Who do you think controls the dice? Last week we talked about terrible things happening up till this point. But the text wants us to pay attention to Esther and Mordecai. Yes, things are getting worse and worse. It goes from a rich and prideful king throwing a raucous party and losing his wife to an escalation of violence and choosing a queen in this way with a harem to an escalation in chapter 3 to this plot to destroy all the Jews. 
but he's saying, pay attention. Watch. Watch Esther. Watch Mordecai. Help is going to come in unlikely places. The first application I want us to consider as we ask, what does it mean for us as Christians, us as the church, as the people of God to live in exile is this, the reality that there is a war going on and there has been since the garden. The seed of the serpent desires nothing more than the destruction of the seed of the woman. Listen, this is not new. This is ongoing. It's going on in our day. Even this ultimate conflict has already been won in the person of Christ. The battle rages on. Christ has already defeated the power of the devil. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. But while we tarry in this life, this battle still rages. Paul tells us in Ephesians that the kind of battle we must wage is one of faith. Listen to Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen, the issue in Esther was not just flesh and blood. It wasn't just a quick-tempered king. It wasn't just a hot-tempered Haman. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our strength, the strength of Mordecai or Esther does not come from the flesh, but it comes from the Lord. It comes from God's grace. It comes to us by faith. Trust in the providence of God because the real enemy is way more crafty than flesh and blood. Listen, as we live our lives, we shouldn't, we should expect pushback as Christians from a world that hates us and hates the gospel. Another point of application that can be drawn is that even in the midst of an evil empire, with evil things happening all around him, Mordecai stood his ground with worship. Everybody else was bowing down. They knew that Haman could do some bad things, but he refused because of his beliefs, because of his God. Christians are to obey the laws of the state. But scripture, scripture teaches that, but it also teaches that we should obey God before anyone else and over any other law. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Mordecai. Yes, he was a, a member of the state of Persia. He lived in Susa. He did all of that. But when it came to his def defying his conscience before God, he wouldn't do it. Why aren't you bowing? Because I'm Jewish. Because of my beliefs. The final application I would like us to consider is the reality of our good king. And just the vast contrast of Jesus to this evil plot. Consider our good king. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says that I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Do you see the contrast between the, these evil 
men who wish nothing but death and Jesus, our King, who has come to give us life. The reality of this plot to kill all the Jews is unjust and evil. But the reality is before God and because of sin, you and I, we all deserve death. That is the wages for sin. We deserve to die because of our sin. Scripture is very plain on that front. The results that we deserve is death. The sentence, just as it was hung on the Jews, is hung on us. And just as we see in Esther, God stopping the plot, redeeming his people, saving them, that's exactly what he has done for us in the person of Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is what God has done to face down this plot. He sent his son into the world. Born under the law, taking our place under the law, completing it, living it perfectly, ultimately dying on a cross to redeem us. Rising, conquering death, hell in the grave, ascending into heaven so that we might rise as well. Do you see your good king? Contrast to the wicked kings of this world. Do you see your king preserving you, loving you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality of your gospel, the way it contrasts so greatly to these evil plots. Lord, would you shape us by this good news? Where we learn to trust you, Lord, as we live in this world that has um, set itself against your people, would we be encouraged, Lord, to believe And by faith, continue as your people, faithful to you. Lord, would you do all of this for your glory and for our good? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.